Welcome back to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. This week, I got to sit down with fellow Simply Be clinician, Eric Stevenson. Eric is a licensed professional counselor and a certified mental health coach. He specializes in working with adolescents, young adults, and athletes, helping them with issues such as anxiety, depression, self-esteem, perfectionism, and life transitions. I want to have Eric on the show today to talk specifically about the issues of men's mental health. This is an issue that deserves a lot of attention because suicide rates among men are on the rise and there is still a strong stigma around seeking treatment. Since joining my practice over two years ago, Eric has seen a lot of our male clients and has a great insight on common trends that we're seeing today. Listen in as he has so many wonderful things to say about these issues and what parents and clinicians can do to provide support. You know, we do dental check-ins, right? Every six months we get our teeth cleaned, but we're not doing mental health check-ins, right? That's just something that's becoming more uh, reactive than proactive, right? When I think it's, it's just as important as having healthy teeth, having a healthy body, is having a healthy mind. Today, you will learn common issues that we see amongst male clients in our office, how parents can help their kids make effective changes, and coping with strategies to help teens combat negative thoughts and emotions. As always, thank you for being here on another episode of Well, Not Perfect. All right, Eric, super glad that you're on the episode today talking about men's mental health. I was in a meeting with a couple of our people here at Simply Be, and we were talking about what are the current topics that we're seeing or reasons why people are calling. And we are getting more and more calls from men, males, adolescents, children, and adults. And because you are our only male therapist, and in general, not as many male therapists are in our field, I wanted to pick your brain on this a little bit and kind of hear what your thoughts are. So one of my first questions is, why do you kind of see calls increasing for men or males, as opposed to even two years ago before COVID? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question um, and something I think we'll, we'll probably get into and touch on even in more detail later on. But I think first, just the, just the clinical need for mental health has increased in a sense, right? So I think we're probably not just getting more calls for just males, but also females as well. And with the increase in both, you're probably seeing an increase in the males as well. I think with, with of course, the, the experience with COVID um, the last you know, a couple of years ago and, you know, still, still feeling the after effects of it that, you know, that led to a lot of social isolation and a lot of stress, um, especially in the population I see, which is kind of the, the adolescent and young adults. And so I think this was maybe for the first time, a lot of males had their first experiences with depression, with anxiety. And, you know, maybe here and there, they felt, you know, they've experienced it in the past, but with COVID and just, the, just the, the extra and added stressors of pressure in life that have changed over the last few years, it's just more, you know, it's going to be more commonplace to see males, males call in. And with just, I think just with the increase in, in just the um, commonality of it, the, uh, the benefit of it is I think also the stigma around uh, mental health, especially when it comes to men is lessening. I think a lot of professional athletes and male role models in our society are posting about commenting, making videos um, about how they they sought out help, right? 
they needed help, they were anxious, they were depressed. And it's almost kind of like that follow suit effect. You know, you know, I was in high school 10 years ago. I didn't know anything about mental health. I didn't know one, at least it wasn't open. That one friend told me they saw, sought out mental health counseling, where most of the uh, individuals I see at least know one or two friends that are also talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. Can I ask like a kind of a personal question is how do you see Absolutely. those conversations changing with your friends and your buddies? Like how, how are they talking about it? Or how do you guys talk about it? I mean, one being a therapist, but then two also just like running around with a group of other men. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think the, the conversations just, just around mental health, you know, I think it was used to be maybe something that was like joked about in a sense, or like maybe made light of to some degree. And I think especially recently, the conversation around mental health has really spun off in like more in a positive light of something like, Hey, like this is something I am really struggling with. And, you know, Hey, if you know, talk like guys, you know, guys talking to, you know, males talking to other males, it's not as much, Oh, like get over it. Or, you know, you're being, you know, weak. It's, it's more along like, Hey, if you need to talk to me, you know, Hey, call me or like, let's go, let's go get a, a lunch. Let's, let's go do something like this. So, you know, the more and more that you're seeing that and it's, it's more, okay, let's actually, this is, this is something that's real and we're here for each other as opposed to just like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Or, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I don't want to burden you guys with it. Um, it's definitely, you know, I've seen it in my own life and I've you know, heard about it with my clients. It's, it's, it's much become much more of a conversation, topic of conversation, just like when they're, when they're hanging out and um, spending time together. Yeah. I think when, mm-hmm. when people are talking about it, you start to look at yourself and you start to kind of see parts of your habits or your attitude that you see it in other people as they're talking about their mental health. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that my insomnia was anxiety, but now that I've heard my buddy talk about it, that makes Mm -hmm. sense for me. So the more we talk about it, I think more we look at our blind spots and see more into ourselves and create that self-awareness you and I are in the sports consulting program here at Simply V mm-hmm. and we talk about self-awareness constantly and that being like the most important thing, the foundation before you can do anything else in mental health. What is the experience that you have with males versus females when they come in and their level of self-awareness? Yeah, I would say females for sure are going to be higher in the self-awareness aspect, right? I think there, there's a lot more either just lingering or thinking or journaling, um, which, are, which are all great things to kind of build that self-awareness, which males maybe are missing out on, right? I don't think they're necessarily, like they might know how they're feeling, but they're, they don't know how to vocalize it or describe it. They don't know the vocabulary to use. You know, they, they have these, I just feel down or I just feel sad or I'll, you know, I'll kind of get over this. Um, we're definitely, you know, females are just, you know, more thought out, right? They kind of go, go through with this, which it could be, could, could become a negative at the same time, right? If it's, if it's a lot of rumination and, um, and contemplation about things, but that's, that's definitely the, you know, the biggest difference that I see from the female clients that I see versus, versus the males as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, and the self-awareness that like, we like to break down to keep it really easy for people is we call it the big four and the thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, and mm-hmm. urges or actions. Those are the big four. And the females are very aware of their thoughts. I think they're very cognizant of their thoughts because they talk more to friends. So just the more you talk, the more, you know, men talk less 
or elaborate less. So then you just have less awareness. So if, if men speak more to one another, or even to women, the more you speak, the more you're aware of your thoughts. And I think that's a really easy suggestion for men is to increase your words and your conversations because that will increase your awareness or write. I think writing is a little bit harder for men for whatever reason at first. The other one is emotions and men and women both struggle with identifying emotions because they often confuse a thought versus a feeling. So an example of a thought is, I feel like they don't like me. Well, that's still a thought and the feeling is sadness, fear, disappointment, something like that. So in my experience, working with men and women, they both tend to over-identify the thought awareness and don't quite understand like emotional awareness. Now, physical sensations is, I'm curious to know your thoughts. Do you see a difference in physical sensations, like the awareness between men and women? There's there's a lot of similarities, but I think men, for instance, their physical sensations will, will be kind of shown through like anger in a sense, but like physically where they'll feel a lot of tension, right? They'll feel a lot of like tension in their neck or their shoulders, a lot of like agitation that they just, you know, kind of that, that shakiness, whether it's dealing with anxiety, whether it's dealing with depression in a sense, uh, where, where women might experience more like headaches, uh, more stomach aches, more, more of those sensations, but there's, there's definitely a lot of similarities. Definitely, definitely know that, that men experience a lot of, you know, just tension and built up tension, which, which we talked about, you know, something they're not being able to talk about. They don't have the coping skills and how to, you know, manage those, those physical sensations. So they just kind of hold it all in and it becomes pretty tense. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Like the, the chest tension, you know, even feelings like heart attacks when they're actually panic attacks, back pain is a huge one for men fatigue, feeling low energy, noticing a difference in like their sex drive and things like that. So men are displaying mental health symptoms. I think that's really what we're saying here. It just, it looks different and hopefully, you know, physicians are screening for anxiety and depression and having these really honest conversations about it. I'd be really helpful. Okay. So the other, the the last one of the awareness steps is the urges. So awareness of urges and I guess I just want to like jump in and just do like a quick little education on what an urge is. So an awareness of an urge is the pre-step to the actual action. And if we have awareness of what we want to do, then we improve our self-awareness because we may not do the thing we want. So we may want to blast off a text message to our boss or an email and if we have the urge and we notice that urge with self-awareness, we don't do it. We like to focus self-awareness on urges and not on actions because actions are the things that you don't have control over anymore because they had just happened. So we like to take a step back and say, okay, awareness of urges. So the awareness of urges, I think, is the biggest education piece of therapy for me, working with people, because oftentimes we don't even know that subconsciously we are planning for something. When you're working with men, and I'm just going to ask about athletes, because that's really where I know you spend a lot of your time. When an athlete discovers that they have an urge step before the action, how does that improve their performance and their overall well-being? No, absolutely. So I think, right, just like you mentioned, the first step when I'm working with an athlete or, or just 
you know, just a, just another individual who, you know, just comes in for, for something non-athletic focused. I really want them to build that awareness, right, of their, their big four, right, and the urge one that we're talking about. Athletes, I, I see oftentimes athletes have some emotional regulation deal on the court, right, where they're going to, either they make a mistake or somebody said something or they're upset, right, and that they have this urge to throw equipment, right? They have this urge to, you know, probably, you know, maybe, maybe have it hit or do something illegal that causes, you know, points against their team that causes penalties against their team. And a lot of times they're not even aware of the urge, right? They, it happens so quickly that their anger builds, anxiety builds. They just let it out, out of like, without even thinking, right? That's a, you know, a commonality that I hear is, yeah, I wasn't even thinking out there. I just let my emotions get the best of me. And what happens is, is oftentimes if they follow suit with that urge is something negative kind of, kind of falls along and it's in hindsight, they look back and realize, oh yeah, they, maybe that was a bad idea or, you know, I, I hurt my team in that situation. So helping this athlete say, hey, like, okay, I know you pushed another player and, you know, got thrown out of the game. Okay. That's not right. Let's, let's, that happened. It's over with, let's go back in time and say what led up to that. Right. Okay. I, you know, I did that because I was angry. Right. What were you angry about? When did you first realize that urge was coming? Like, were you able to kind of slow it down and pause in a sense and um, give yourself some time? And the better the athletes, you know, as of course it takes time, but the better they get at identifying their urge early, the more control or the better chance they're going to give themselves to respond instead of maybe react in, an, in a negative way. Um, so being able to, to really identify their urges, know how to do that and know how to do it early is going to help the athletes make better decisions, both from an emotional standpoint and from a performance standpoint as well to just, just overall improve their, their ability to play, play well. I like what you're saying because I'm sitting here listening as a mother of an athlete and a son, not as a therapist. And what I'm hearing you say that I can do as a mom is let the action go. So my son's name's Charlie. So I say, okay, Charlie, you threw your glove because you didn't get to play the position you wanted to play because he's seven. So you threw your glove. I'm, I'm going to let go of that. That's not what I'm talking to you about. You made that choice. I'm not angry with you about that choice. What I want to talk to you about right now is the thought you had before you threw it. What was the thought? And if he says, I don't know, or I didn't have one, I would say, I want you to understand that you did have a thought. You may not know it right now, but you did have a thought. And I want you to start to understand that you are having thoughts before, before you throw your gloves or before you talk back. Also, you have emotions before you threw your glove. Your emotion could have been anger or annoyance and you may not know that emotion either, but I want you to understand that there are things that are happening to you before you throw the glove. And as a mom, I want to correct the behavior and say, you're disrespectful. You threw your glove. Now you're in trouble. Here's your consequence. And I do that. Don't get me wrong. But when I hear you, what the you know improvement of being a parent, like what I want to do better is say, I'm moving on from the glove. Like, yes, you're going to have a consequence, but I don't want to talk to you about the glove because 
we spend way too much time talking about the action that they did wrong. And it just induces like shame and guilt. And we have to remember kids are learning and they're making impulsive decisions up until like their twenties. So what we want to do is just say like, we're moving on from that. Let's talk about the three things before. And if you sit here and have a nice conversation with me, your consequence will be less. So kind of incentivizing them to do the more, the more restorative conversation than the punishment, because most athletes, if they do something like that, they feel so guilty and they feel bad that the last thing they really need is a parent reiterating it. Like they still have to go face their teammates and their coach. Like they're, they're feeling it. So I think as parents, we have to use the opportunity to just educate them on the front end of the big four. Yeah. I like, I like that. I like how you said the throwing the glove isn't the concern, right? Um, and that's, that's something I always go back to, especially with parents. Like that's just the signal that there's a deeper underlying concern happening, whether it's things that they tell themselves, like, I'm, you know, I stink. I'm not good enough. I always let my teammates down. I am, I'm embarrassing myself. And those thoughts lead to, you know, of course, you know, emotions of embarrassment, emotions of anger, which then leads to the glove throw. It all happens, you know, in the flash, you know, but we know that those things are happening prior to the actual negative action, right? That we see on the surface, right? We have to talk about, okay, hey, an athlete getting angry, an athlete throwing a glove, an athlete pushing another player, right? an athlete getting mad. Those are things that happen on the surface level. That's what we can see. But there's, you know, what we need to address, talk about, concern ourselves with what's happening underneath mm-hmm. the surface way before that yeah, actually even occurs. Throughout my 10 years as a therapist, I've learned a thing or two about growth. I've had the honor of supporting clients and becoming more resilient people, overcoming obstacles, and achieving their goals. What I've learned through this process is that there are five essential steps in every growth journey. With the goal of making personal growth accessible to all, I use these steps to create a planner series so that anyone can work on their growth anytime and anywhere. Each step includes pages of insight and skills from my personal and professional experiences and ends with 30 days of space for you to practice what you've learned. Personal growth isn't a quick process, but this series is designed to make it easy and fun. Learn more at www.simplybecounseling.net slash planners. And be sure to check out the subscription option, which gets you a planner delivered to your door every month for the next five months. Since you're a Well Not Perfect listener, you can get 10% off on any order using code WELLNOTPERFECT. There's no better day than today to tap into your own growth and resiliency. So we're talking about impulsive decisions that athletes are making. Going a little bit more into like the male mental health, what are other mental health things that you see in boys or males under the age of like 18? What are some trending things you see right now? Yeah, there's, uh, I think ADHD is one that's pretty popular right now. And I think, of course, there's a lot of countries say, okay, you know, is this ADHD or are they just having difficulty in school? Is this ADHD or are they just like getting anxiety from being bored where they can't, they can't focus in class. They can't, you know, you know, of course from COVID, there's a lot of, uh, there's a full year, maybe two years of online school, right? And of course, let's be honest, I talked to my clients 
they weren't really paying attention, right? They were kind of just, they had the computer going, they were doing the minimum. They were just kind of, you know, playing video games on the side or what he's sleeping, something, whatever that was. So, the, you know, you kind of take them from this, this whole full year of not really doing much to, okay, now you're back in the building. Now you have these high expectations. Now you have to, you know, take tests in person, not online. And what I'm noticing a lot is that under 18, that these male individuals are really struggling with the burdensome or just dealing with school, the, the work, the school, you know, the workload that school has just sitting there in their desk, not being able to do what they want for eight, nine hours. Um, the expectations of well, grades were a lot easier during COVID. Now they're harder again because I, you know, because I can't just take the test online or because I can't just turn in a homework whenever. So a lot of anxiety around school, just generalized anxiety about like wanting to leave school, right? Wanting to come out early, not wanting to do homework or delaying homework or putting it off for a really long time. Um, these are, this is something that's it's been super, super common over the last six months to a year that, that I've been seeing kind of come in. And I think a lot of parents are, you know, saying like it's anxiety about school or it's ADHD. And of course, this sustained for a long enough period of time can manifest into some symptoms of like depression as well. Mm -hmm. They feel bad that they they feel bad that they're falling behind in school or they're getting yelled at by their parents or they're not you know meeting up with their or living up to the level of, that their peers are doing. So they start isolating, they start feeling guilty, but they still don't know how to get kind of get back on track. And once we see those symptoms, I mean, it's really important for a parent to see that there's disinterest, isolation, difficulty sleeping, change in appetite, change in attitude, that if there's a shift in your child for more than a couple of weeks in a row, or what they say now is more days than not. So if you have more bad days than not, it's an indication that there's a problem. And I think that's really easy for a parent to just have a felt sense that something's not right and that you wanna call and get an assessment by a licensed clinician to make sure that you're really having a finger on it because prevention is best. The sooner you get someone into services, especially men, because by the time you see a problem, it's likely worse then you realize because men are hiding it still because of the stigma and the, the awareness piece that we've not socialized our men to really do the deeper work at a young age that oftentimes we're more in deeper waters than we even realized. So I think as soon as a parent sees a male or a child or not a parent, a wife or a partner, if someone sees a male struggling, it's probably worse and that person may not even know it's worse, right? It could just be a completely under the radar experience because oftentimes when it's bad, it's really bad. The majority of suicides are by men, by the use of guns. And those are the most lethal form of suicide. And that's really concerning. What are some of the prevention steps that people can take to get ahead of anyone who's feeling suicidal? Yeah, you know, I think just just basic access and awareness to getting mental health help is really important, right? You know, and I've heard this before, before from another clinician I really strongly support is, you know, we do dental check-ins, right? Every six months we get our teeth cleaned, right? And we go and do our physical at the doctor. But 
we're not doing mental health check-ins, right? That's just something that's becoming more uh, reactive than proactive, right? When I think it's, it's just as important as having healthy teeth, having a healthy body is having a healthy mind, right? And I don't, and I think it becomes, oh, like when I start feeling bad or when I start feeling anxious or depressed or having suicidal thoughts, that's when I'll go get help as opposed to like making it more of an importance versus uh, something what we're going to react to, right? So at least just like for parents, and I know it's not like a mandated thing yet, but you know, that's, you know, whether your kid says they're absolutely fine or there's nothing more, okay. You know, every six months, maybe just do a check-in with a mental health clinician just to see where you're at, you know, just to talk to them, right? Be open, talk about, talk about something. I think oftentimes, a lot of times when a young male or teenager commits suicide, something you're often going to hear in the community is, oh, like, we never saw it coming or there were no signs or there was nothing like that because that's the males are, they don't want anybody to know. They're trying to hide a lot of the symptoms and the signs and they, they want they try to uh, battle this, you know, struggle through this battle on their own without really like, letting anybody know. Right. So of course, just doing, you know, having some check-ins with mental health providers, right. Having that access, you know, talking to a school counselor, et cetera, is going to be really helpful. The mental health check-ins that you're talking about, I want to say in addition to that is frequently bringing up mental health in just a general way because we're finding with suicide that the 25% of suicides are completed within five minutes of deciding that they want to end their life. The other 25% is within one to two hours. So 50% of suicides by guns are those who have acutely decided. So there could be acute stress. There could be some sort of financial crisis going on, access to a gun is more likely to result in a suicide completion because of the access. If the gun is securely stored away, away from the ammunition, then those people who are either within five minutes or within one to two hours, that's 50% of suicides that would be prevented if they didn't have such a quick access to it. So Mm -hmm. the mental health check-ins that you're talking about are super important because you can find the more chronic person who is feeling hopeless And if you're talking about mental health consistently, you might check the person who is acutely stressed and also letting that person feel safe enough to be in such a crisis that they can talk about it and not feel weak or not feel like they should, they should have known something and not made a mistake. So the check-ins are super important for the chronic. And I wanted to add that anyone who's not chronic, but it's an acute suicidality, we want to just create an environment in our homes that it's a conversation that's ongoing and it's why our guns are put away. I think that's really, really important. I want to ask you just one more question. And that is, what are some of your go-to coping strategies that you're recommending with your male clients? And what are the ones that you've even used yourself? Yeah, right. I think there's, especially with males, I think they like to be um, more objective and have these more practical solutions. To, like more cerebral, right? Like yeah, more brainy. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So um, I go, okay, you know what? Let's start at the foundations of like, you know, how is you? how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Are you getting exercise? Are you moving? Are you, you know, partaking in the hobbies that you like? Are you showering? Are you doing kind of these basics? Like we have to kind of start at the, the foundation of physical and mental health. Because if they're, if they're, 
struggling with any, if, if any of those areas, right? If they're not sleeping well, right? If, they're, if their diet's off, um, if they're not seeing friends, if they're isolating, stuff like that. Say, okay, we want to start there, right? We want to start making sure that you're giving yourself time to, you know, do the hobbies that you enjoy. You're making time to see friends, kind of get together with, with your group of friends at school or from your team or whatever that might be. Because of course, like a lot of the research shows that just, just doing these basic fundamental needs is going to lead to much, much better success in terms of mental health from anxiety and depression standpoint, right? And if I, okay, so we, we'll kind of start there. And when, when a client is doing well with that, then we kind of lead to some other interesting skills. And of course it's person dependent, but I see, if, you know, see what they're interested in and say, okay, you know, is journaling interesting to you, right? A lot of guys, it's not super interesting. Some it is, right? Talk about meditation and mindfulness, right? Taking five minutes in the morning and five minutes before bed to kind of just do a guided meditation on YouTube, right? Just something that kind of helps, you know, whether that's clear their mind or focus their mind for that, you know, that particular point. Something also practical, especially like for anxiety is to kind of like, we want them to get more like in the here and now. So something like a five, four, three, two, one is a, is a basic one. So, you know, use, using all of their five senses, right? Five things you, five things you see, four things you can touch, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. Um, kind of going to that when maybe they're in a state of like panic or, or high anxiety arousal at that, you know, at that time. But socializing, making time for friends, kind of doing the basics that they need are all really, really good coping skills. And then of course, through, through, you know, beyond just the practical skills, we, we implement a lot of just CBT, helping them identify um, a lot of the negative thoughts that they're, you know, that are leading to these emotions and challenge them and be able to change them, be able to support them or unsupport them with, with evidence. So, you know, I'll come in and have them write down, okay, here's some negative thoughts that I had throughout the week, you know, things that I was feeling or things that I was thinking to myself. We'll go through one at a time and I'll kind of, you know, just say, okay, now if this came up, if this comes up tomorrow, how do you address this? How do you challenge this thought, right? How do you, what are you going to do to disprove this thought in a sense, mm-hmm. right? So then they get, that's almost becomes a, a practical skill for them is, oh, I, you know, over time, I got really good at, you know, challenging my depression because my depression is, oh, I just want to go to bed and like nobody likes me or something like that. And they're like, okay, now I know how to challenge that thought, right? And now I know what to tell myself that, oh no, that's just a symptom of depression. I am feeling tired, but I probably should shower. I probably should make, this is the time to go walk my dog. And when they start making those, those small incremental decisions over time, we'll start to see themselves kind of mm-hmm. work through and get through a lot of the, the mental health concerns that they're, they're facing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I like the suggestions here because what you're saying is that when you are, again, self-aware and can respond to yourself in a way that has a lot of skills behind it, you feel more confident and it really creates a feedback loop to you that you are going to be okay and that you can solve problems that might originally have felt like unsolvable without the skills and techniques. So that's really, really helpful. Well, thanks for coming on today and people can find you on our website and the webinars that you do with us and everything else. So Eric, thanks for being here on another episode of Well, Not Perfect. Thank you for listening to season three. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information, all things podcast, you can connect with us on Instagram at Well, Not Perfect. See you next week.